Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. What is up, everybody? My name is Kyle Matovic. I am the host of the In Liberty and Health podcast, where we talk all things liberty, health and wellness, and beyond. My hope is to encourage and spread the message of liberty, physical, and mental well-being. I hope you enjoy all the topics we talk about with our guests. We're on all major streaming platforms, so please sit back, relax, and enjoy. Man, I'm doing as good as anyone can do getting buried by his 13-year-old son on leg day. <laughs> I'm not going to apologize for not being on this podcast because I got to go see Metallica, so... If that's a problem, kiss my ass. Okay? I am. <laughs> all right, all right, all right. I'm very, very happy to introduce today's guest on In Liberty and Health, episode number 108-109. Um, I got the legendary Dave DeCamp with me, one of the most prolific anti-war writers of our time currently, at least the way that I see it. Dave, how you doing, brother? I'm good, Kyle. Thanks for having me. Of course. No, I'm, I'm very, very stoked to have this conversation. Um. So I guess real quick, give a brief introduction to yourself and what kind of got you into writing um, anti-war stuff and what kind of got you down that road? Well, so for years, uh, I I was pretty, uh, you know, I was always very anti-war. I was in high school, you know, during the George W. Bush years when we were in Iraq and stuff. So that was a pretty, you know, formidable years for me. Um, Then, you know, I kind of went to college and, you know, I kind of forgot about it, but um it was really uh, around 2013, I think, that I started kind of getting back into it and really learning about the issue of Palestine and Israel. And I was just kind of amazed at how much I didn't know about it. And that kind of just learning about that really just kind of led me down the rabbit hole because you realize how misinformed you are on something. And then you just kind of discover all these other lies about U.S. foreign policy. Um, and then I kind of got motivated to start writing Um, I mean, I didn't really start writing until 2018, 2019, but I was really motivated kind of by the 2016 election because I saw how, you know, both sides kind of were ignoring like the worst. I mean, in in my world at the time, kind of just seeing the mainstream news and people around me, uh, you know, people kind of ignored the criticisms of Hillary weren't so much Libya. I mean, Benghazi was a big part of it, but yeah. that's a very like limited hangout narrative around <laughs> Benghazi anyway, but it was, you know, her really her support for Libya and all the stuff in Syria and meddling in Russia and, and uh, you know, the coup in Ukraine. Um, that was just not something on people's minds. And then on the flip side, all the people that were freaking out about Trump and, and we saw this throughout his presidency Nobody cared about the worst things, most destructive things he was doing, which was in the Middle East, his bombing mm-hmm. campaigns and continuing the war in Yemen and all that. And even during the debates, I mean, he had some great rhetoric about Bush and Iraq and Hillary, mm-hmm. but uh, he was also saying he's going to bomb the shit out of them and, you know, kill their families and all that. <laughs> yeah. So that was kind of what just kind of how little attention the issue uh was getting at the time and then uh and i was a leftist too i or i thought i was a leftist i just never was really introduced to good libertarians mm-hmm. and it was really listening to the scott horton show and i always like ron paul even mm-hmm. back I, like i read end the fed back in the day and i was like yeah that, that makes sense <laughs> but and it was actually watching the ron paul liberty report in 2018 2019 when the coup in venezuela happened and just seeing libertarians that were like so good on foreign policy and then i kind of discovered libertarianism that way through and to me it's the most consistent ideology to be anti-war because mm-hmm. you think about how they fund the wars you know it, it's really uh, makes the most sense to me and non-interventionism is uh you know kind of the key to it i think and not wanting to put your ideals on other countries um which some libertarians are uh you know guilty of uh trying to export their ideology and, and it's easy <laughs> to kind of it's like that with with everything though, it's, it's mm-hmm. easy to convince people that, uh, 
you know, the way they think the world, their country should be is how other countries should be. And it's easy to get people riled up like that. But yeah, it was that. And then I, I started writing for antiwar.com. I think it was like end of 2019. And I just, they were publishing stuff. So I just kept writing. And then uh, we started talking and I did it part-time for them. And then I was offered a job 2020. I started full-time in September, 2020, which was really great because I really love what I do. And I was able to move out of New York, which was mm. God really said, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's kind of funny. I just had a, a tweet today that I put out talking about. Um, I was listening to Tim Cass with Angela McArdle, and um, I know that you recently kind of got into the Mises Caucus, and I want to talk to you a little bit about that too. But um, some, they said, oh, $180,000 a year isn't that much money. And I was like, dude, coming from like the Northeast, I'm in uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, right? About mm -hmm. an hour north of there. Like, dude, if you make 180 grand a year, in like this neighborhood, you, you own like a city block. Mm -hmm. So just kind of seeing people that out of touch was, it, it was baffling to me, but you know, these are, that, that's what you may see in New York or California and some of these big cities is just, you know, a dollar here may not go as far as a dollar there, but yeah. So um, when it came to like some of the foreign policy stuff, when it came to Trump, it seemed like a lot of people had a lot more slack for him because he had good rhetoric surrounding the war stuff. And this is what was so frustrating when it came to Trump for me is that people weren't able to be objective about it, right? Like nobody, everybody would say, oh, he's an anti-war candidate. It's like, well, are, are you paying attention to anything that's actually going on? Like in his first year, he killed more people by drone strikes and Obama did in eight years, um, vetoing, ending multiple wars. And then every time he met any resistance from the military industrial complex, it was just, oh, well, we got to roll over and kind of take it. Um, it. It was baffling to me to see how little people actually cared about that particular issue, especially when it came to Trump. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting because I saw a lot of conservatives, right wingers towards like they started to really go after Obama for his drone war, uh, like kind of during the, the Trump years while Trump was, you know, he ramped all that stuff up and he kind of winded it down in his last year or two. Uh, mm -hmm. But, you know, when he first came in, I mean, he ramped everything up. And like you said, he rolled over, mm -hmm. you know, if that's the if that's uh, how we judge a president, um, then, oh, it's not Obama's fault that he intervened in Libya because he didn't, he didn't want to do it and Hillary convinced him to do it. Uh, he just reluctantly <laughs> did it. Uh, yeah. So, you know, I just don't think we should give presidents that much slack. And, I mean, I get, you know, the way he came in and, and how, like, great it was, how he really ripped the mask off of the presidency and of the, exposed a lot of stuff. Yeah. But, um, you know, you just can't ignore this stuff. Like, we have to be honest about it. Um, and, you know, I mean, what Trump did, what, and we're kind of seeing the culmination of, of a lot of that today, you know, his Pentagon was the first one to say, all right, counterterrorism in the Middle East, that's kind of on the back burner. We're going to move towards this great power competition with Russia and China. Mm -hmm. He was the first one to send weapons, uh, the Javelin missiles to Ukraine, and he ramped everything up in the South China Sea with China. Um, yeah. Now, it's it's impossible to say that if Russia would have invaded, if Trump was elected, but I mean, I don't think things would be that that much different. Um, okay, yeah, I'm kind of glad you touched on that because I actually did want to ask you about that because there's so many right-wingers that are touting around and obviously these people love Trump and they all say, oh, well, this wouldn't happen under Trump's watch. And I'm like, I think you guys give the, this whole situation a little too much credit. Um, it, it's like they literally interpret the world as a light switch as soon as Biden got elected, right? We didn't have inflation until Biden got elected. We didn't have Russia invading Taiwan until all this, or I'm sorry, not Taiwan, but uh, <laughs> Ukraine. <laughs> and, you know, surely enough, that's probably going to happen down the line sometime, but, you know, we don't know exactly how that's going to play out or what it's going to look like. But um, I, I still think, I, I agree with you that a lot of the stuff would generally be the exact same. Maybe there'd be some different rhetoric around it, but um it, it, it's also kind of good that Biden's as horrible as he is because it kind of exposes things, and especially the left for how awful they are and how little solutions that they actually have. Yeah, I mean, things are so bad. Like, <laughs> I mean, Biden has been about as bad as, as he could have been. I mean, the only good thing he did was end the war in Afghanistan. Um, he actually did it. Uh, you know, and it's tough to say if Trump would have done it because all that yeah. media pressure and stuff, if he, he might have rolled over. Mm -hmm. Like he did twice when he said he was going to pull out of Syria, which was way less big of a deal than 
pulling out of Afghanistan. Yeah. But, but also I think it was time. It was, you know, the, they were ready to move on to other things and, and, and the prospect of it in escalation in Afghanistan wasn't something that, you know, they wanted, um, no matter how much media pressure there was. And, but anyway, yeah, I mean, it's hard to say, I, but I think, you know, a big consequence of Russiagate, I mean, I don't know if Trump would have been as, as hawkish on Russia as he was if it wasn't for Russiagate. Probably, yeah. probably not. Mm-hmm. Probably still would have been, but not nearly as much as he, as he was. You know, I remember there was this video going around <clears throat> around the time Russia invaded of Trump. I forget what year, maybe 2017 or 2018 of him at a NATO meeting talking to Stoltenberg, the, the NATO secretary general, and I think Merkel, the former chancellor of Germany, kind of really criticizing Germany for buying all this Russian gas and saying, you know, we pay for your defense. It's not, oh, you're buying all this Russian gas. We don't need to defend you from Russia. We can just be friends with Russia. You know, the narrative was uh, if you're buying all this gas from Russia and we're paying for your defense, it's like either cut down your reliance on Russia. Mm -hmm. Well, really what he wanted was cut down your reliance on Russia and increase military spending. Um, So that was always his narrative. It wasn't so much hey, let's just trade and all be friends. And <laughs> which, yeah, you yeah. know, he was trying to kill the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which it seems like has been killed um, since Germany suspended it. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, getting the uh, kind of the, the way he shook things up with NATO trying to saying that kind of just putting it out into, uh, into the public and getting people's attention that we're paying all this for NATO. And we have <laughs> so many troops, over 30,000 troops in Germany. Um, you know, it, cause it is ridiculous and a lot of people yeah. probably don't really think about it very often. Yeah, no, nobody, if you tell people that we have military bases in, what is it over 190 or 150 countries all over the world, people look at you like you got six heads, or if you even let them know about the genocide going on over in Yemen and how, you know, how we consistently sold arms to the Saudis for years and years and years. Um, and, the people look at you like you have six heads, but one of the funniest talking points around Biden pulling out of Af- Afghanistan was, uh, oh, well, they just left all these weapons to the Taliban. It's like, well, you realize we've been arming those people over there and not just one faction. We've been arming every single faction for years and years and years and years and years. And Trump was no different. I mean, yeah, he sold weapons to the Saudis and everything specifically for, um, you know, that war in Yemen. But um do you really think that those weapons never made it anywhere else? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> do, do you really think that they just sat there? And then, of course, the talking point after that is, okay, well, you know, why not let them just take the weapons and kill each other? Okay, well, if you're going to be upset about weapons being left there from Biden pulling out, then you should be upset about weapons being over there, period, because guess where those weapons generally get pointed? They get pointed at us because we can't stop meddling over there. Yeah, I mean, Trump, you know, he was pushing through all these arm deals to Saudi mm-hmm. and the UAE and... uh there's all these investigations that came out during his presidency that showed weapons sold to these countries were ending up in the hands of Al Qaeda in Yemen. <laughs> um, so yeah, you can't really talk there. And one kind of important thing with the Afghanistan withdrawal is that, you know, everybody says it went so horribly, which it definitely, you know, did. There was not really, <laughs> that wasn't going to go a good way, Yeah. but what they wanted, you know, the smooth exit would have been, the U.S.-backed Afghan government that fell apart when we left, mm-hmm. they wanted them to just keep fighting the Taliban, and we would have just been funding a proxy war there for years and years, and they would have been killing each other in the tens of thousands. But instead, they they decided not to fight. And uh, and they're really, surprisingly, because even uh, most people predicted and good people predicted that when the U.S. did pull out, there would be a brutal civil war and there would be a ton of Taliban reprisals. They'd be going around, you know, killing everybody but they haven't done that which is pretty amazing um the biggest problem now is the economic situation people are there's a lot of food shortages is a big drought and u.s sanctions are making everything worse so that's what's the bad situation there now but that you know there's still some violence some bombings and you know the taliban they've done some reprisals but not nearly to the level that we thought so it's really kind of amazing how less violent that country is Right. was just right after the U.S. got out. Because the last few years of that war were some of the most brutal for the civilians because of the U.S. under Trump really ramped up the bombing campaign before they signed the deal with the Taliban to pull out. So, yeah, they just, they 
you know, like I said, a successful pullout would have been a civil, a brutal civil war that would have lasted forever. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, it's horrible to think about what we essentially enabled there is um, I talked to uh, Joe who lives in Idaho, the uh, guy running for Congress under the Libertarian Party. And he brings up how the, um, the Afghani population, I believe, tripled over the course of 20 years. And then you have to think, okay, well, what were we doing over there? It was a jobs program, right? We handed a bunch of warlords and different factions just cash. And then as soon as we pulled out, now we left all those people without this, you know, economic signal that times are good. So now there's two whole generations, you know, 20 years worth of kids and teenagers that now are going to have to live under terrible, terrible circumstances because now our government's not footing the bill anymore. And that's maybe even more egregious than the idea of just straight up going to war with these people is that now you've completely pulled the rug out from underneath these people. And I'm not advocating for us to go back or do anything about it, but, um, you know, that's kind of a downstream consequence of American foreign policy is that you get this kind of situation where, like I said, now people are going to have to live under just awful conditions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, that's a good point because the U.S. built up this infrastructure and, like you said, pulled out the rug from under them mm-hmm. and seized all of the Afghan central bank's assets, which is about $8 billion, I think. <laughs> and so, you know, the, the, the argument that Rand Paul makes is that we shouldn't give them that money because we funded the government anyway. Mm-hmm. But looking back at it, you know, I think there is an obligation, some obligation to just give them that, that money mm-hmm. because it's the, it's the money, it's the system that's there that we left. And, uh, you know, we just let them have the money in the central bank that belonged to that government, that belonged to that country and lift the sanctions and leave them alone would be the answer. Yeah. Um, but Biden's going to give half of that, the eight billion to uh, families of nine eleven victims. That was an order that he signed, and uh, I think the other he said, "Oh, we're going to distribute the rest to Afghanistan through humanitarian aid." But who knows if that's going to get through? How that's what that's even going to go? It's it's twenty one years later. Things are probably going to be fine. But I agree that you know. We're 20 years after 9-11 and you're going to give money to the victims and to the other side. Like, what's what's the objective here? Who are you going to make whole? And how do you measure this? Like, what's what's the goal other than trying to buy votes and yeah. maybe gain one or two percentage points in favorability amongst the American populace? Mm-hmm. I mean, they're really just being sore losers. <laughs> that's really what it is and the people that, that you know of afghanistan are suffering for it mm-hmm. and you know they had nothing to do with 9-11 um so yeah, yeah it's just it's a shame and you know it's, it's just political because if biden did do that you know if he gave them the money lifted the sanctions you know everybody would go after him for that yeah um, so that's all it is but it's just they're just so spineless the biden administration mm-hmm. they assigned like a you know, the whole talking point leading up to the withdrawal was, oh, what about the Afghan women? What about the women living under the Taliban? Well, now women <laughs> are and their children are starving to death and, mm-hmm. and are uh, lots of Afghan women are, are dying in premature births because of, you know, shortages of medical supplies and stuff. And you, you don't hear a peep about that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it just really shows that... Um, you know, once it's not the news of the day, then nobody, once it's not the current thing, then people don't care. Yeah. And and the frustrating part is that people do this in such a partisan way where they'll only bash Biden for poor foreign policy when it makes him look bad. And when there's something that was actually, you know, whatever was done right, that kind of gets swept under the rug. And same deal with Trump is that people are just blind partisans to their guy whenever they do some good foreign policy stuff. And, this is what's appealing about, I think, you know, now the LP and the libertarian stance in general is that like, hey, we're against all of this, you know, the good foreign policy stuff, the Iran deal or pulling out of, of Afghanistan was the right thing to do. Now, obviously, we disagree with some stipulations around some of this stuff, but um, it, it's only right that we get out and try to leave these other countries alone. 
sorry, my internet is a little shaky sometimes. <laughs> oh yeah. It's all right. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's, you know, the answer is, uh, just to leave them alone really, but you have to, you know, I mean, you look at the world right now, the last few years really starting under Obama, um, and Trump and Biden ramped everything up too, is, is mm -hmm. how many countries are under sanctions? How many countries the U S tries to sanction into doing what they want and how, mm -hmm much of a failure it's been i mean that's the biggest joke about the russia policies now how you know it's a few months later and and it doesn't look like it's hurting russia uh nearly as much as they said it would it's not yeah. slowing the war down which you know it didn't take uh any an expert to predict this result and it's hurting the american economy and it's hurting mm -hmm. it's really hurting europe and they're still going through with this ban of russian oil um and it's hurting you know people in russia that there's definitely economic shock it's not hurting putin in his uh inner circle it's hurting just regular ordinary russians and you know the idea that this is going to turn russians against putin is just nonsense because people rally together when they're facing a foreign threat that's just you know it, there's just documented there's like a case study of this in so many countries in venezuela you know, you saw the U.S. try to do a coup with Juan Guaido, who they picked to be the president. And he had some support at first, not much, but he had some. But after years of the U.S., you know, tightening these sanctions and, and you know, saying that they're going to overthrow the government in Venezuela, he everybody turned on him in the country because what what, what would you do? And um, So, I mean, Cuba, you look at Cuba, they've been under embargo since 1962. Same government. Same sanctions are still in place. Nothing's changed. <laughs> so how can they do these things and, and act like they're surprised when uh, it has these results? Right. Um, so one thing you kind of hit on a little bit earlier was the Russiagate stuff kind of ramping up, unnecessarily ramping up tensions with Russia. Um, a lot of the right half of America was saying Beijing Biden as soon as he got elected. And I'm sure there's still some people saying that. But it's kind of funny because his policy on China has actually been more hawkish than Trump's. I mean, it's been a consistent um, escalation since, what was it, 2015 with Obama's Asia pivot. Um, it's been a consistent escalation. And Trump was very bold about it. Um, Biden is just kind of a walking corpse, so he doesn't have the same kind of charisma about him. But, um, you know, there have been plenty of even Republicans that have come out and said that we will stop um, China if they go to take Taiwan. Um, Kathy Barnett, who is running for Senate here in Pennsylvania, had literally in her, her um, foreign policy platform, we will stop China if they attempt to take Taiwan because energy is independence or something like that. Um, so do you think that this pressure from the right calling Biden, Beijing Biden, um, maybe encourages him to ramp up tensions with China? Or do you think he would still be just hawkish without the uh, rhetoric coming from the right? I, I think it it probably does. But um, I think this was the plan all along. I, mm -hmm. uh, when they were calling him Beijing Biden, I mean, it's not nearly to the level of what they did to Trump. Oh, yeah. Russia. Right. Mm -hmm. But during the whole transition period, I mean, it was very obvious that they're, this is the way that they were going to go. If mm -hmm. just listening to the Senate confirmation hearings and they were saying, you know, Blinken said in his hearing that basically, you know, one of the only things Trump did right was to be tough on China. This guy, Eli Ratner, who's from the Center for New American Security, Neocon, you know, it's kind of like the Neocon think tank these days. He was assigned to be a special advisor to Lloyd Austin, the Secretary of Defense, because mm -hmm. he's a, they could, you know, to advise him on China. And he wrote an op-ed in in 2020 that said trump was weak on china trump was soft on china if you remember biden had an ad saying that trump rolled over to china by not closing the uh flights from china early enough and uh you know he called them weak on china that was they're attacking trump for the same thing so i i thought it was pretty obvious and just by again seeing what all the national security documents coming from Washington over the past years, this, this is the way everything was going to go either way, mm -hmm. whether it was going to be Trump continuing it or, or Biden picking up where Trump left off. I mean, this is the goal. And, and like you said about, um, you know, you, ha you have more and more people in Congress saying that the U S should defend Taiwan if China invades. And I mean, that, that's just such a dangerous idea because, 
China, you know, they don't have any interest in invading Taiwan as it is because the trade, you know, they, they have a huge trade relationship. Millions of people travel from Taiwan to mainland China each year. Um, it's just not in their interest. And, uh, but they've made clear that it's a red line for them. And they've been warning, you know, more strongly recently as the U.S. has increased support for Taiwan that it's the fastest way for the U.S. and China to end up in a war is if the U.S. supports what they call Taiwan's independence forces. And or if they significantly change their po the policy that they set when the U.S. and China opened up back in 1979, when that's when they formalized ties. And, and a big change to that would be committing to defend Taiwan if China invaded. And we're seeing this idea is getting more popular, not just among Republicans, but also Democrats. Um, so we're kind of going down pretty much a very similar road as to what has ha happened with Russia over the past two decades is starting to happen with China. And we're not going to go to war with China anytime soon. And kind of the, the people that want to dismiss this say, oh, nobody's calling for war with China. <laughs> And, and we can't yeah. go to war with China because our economies are so intertwined, which is true. But there's also a lot of people calling for that, for like a full economic decoupling, which would take a really long time. Mm -hmm. And it would really hurt us probably uh, in the short term, at least. But, um, but yeah, I mean, this is, it's just the obvious result. It's the obvious direction we're going and people can't, I don't see how people can deny it. Uh, you know, just today, the, the, this new law came into effect that bans imports from Xinjiang, the region where the Uyghurs are, uh, um, oh. over forced labor allegations. Mm -hmm. And it's a pretty huge bill. It passed almost unanimously through the Senate and the House. The only person that voted against it was Massey. He's, re he's really good on all the Russia bills, yeah. and he's really good on all the China bills. He votes against all of them. He's, he prob he's probably the only one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, even the ones that are just kind of vague resolutions, or ones that like like bills about Hong Kong that sanctioned uh, mm -hmm. Chinese officials for Hong Kong. But you know what's significant is that you know everybody says the Democrats, you know, they make money in China, they have an interest in keeping it all cool. But uh, this bill, I mean, Nike, Coca Cola, all these major companies, these major corporations lobbied against it, but it still passed so easily um so i think it shows the shift in that uh there is something greater than just the u.s interest in making money in china and it could just be as simple as the other side of the other american corporations the military industrial complex wanting to cash in on on the buildup around china because china is a big bad country and can be used to justify all this military spending um but you know, I don't know exactly what's going on with that, with the corp, if some more corporations are actually on the side of kind of a decoupling or more protectionist uh, trade policies. Um, but there's definitely a big shift happening and people have to start noticing it. And also, you know, a, this is the thing about kind of the MAGA right or America, the America firsters, um, is that they're all bad on China. They all want to decouple. Yeah. They all want to decouple and they, you know, none of them are saying, oh, we have to go to war with China, but you can't kind of separate our economic policies with China with the military stuff because that military buildup is still going on and this alliance building in, in Southeast Asia and the Asia Pacific is, is going on. So you can't really separate those issues because if we decouple and we keep doing the alliance building and, and increasing support for Taiwan and eventually agree to defense I want if they invade then we're going to end up in a war over there or a war is going to start we're going to end up funding a proxy war like we are in Ukraine um, so that's just the result of of what would happen if we fully decouple um, and people have to kind of recognize that yeah and um, I know you've tweeted about this and I know Pat's talked about it a lot and this has kind of been my focus over the last couple of years because I noticed it and I'm like this is kind of weird because when you understand the Chinese economy, it's a house of cards, right? Their debt to um, GDP is like 300%. I mean, they are running red hot into an economic hellhole. They're building cities and tearing them down again. Um, the Their Lehman Brothers moment, Evergrande or whatever it was. Um, they've had a lot of stuff go on. And 
there are even libertarians who are atrocious on this China issue. You listen to, like I was saying earlier, Tim Pohl, he is just god awful on this. Everything is China, 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 China. And you see guys like Matt Gates, Marjorie Taylor Greene, they sound like a Ron Paul almost on foreign policy, but then they always caveat it right at the end to say, to focus on China. We need to not focus on Russia. We need to not focus on Afghanistan because we have to focus on China, right? Everything has to eventually pivot to China. And it's kind of funny because they're supposed to be these anti-deep state people. But then when you look at the, what was it, the CIA's memo that they declared China's public enemy number one, it's kind of funny that they want to play kind of both sides, right? You're this anti-government and pro- um, anti-war kind of figure but then you're going to carry the deep state's water when it comes to fighting war with china and like you said nobody is actively calling for war with china but when you sail warships through the taiwanese strait when you're doing air drills over there when we're sending weapons to ta taiwan when we're training taiwanese soldiers it starts to look pretty fishy so it, it's like okay well if it looks like a duck and quacks it's probably a duck and eventually that duck's going to be poking over into china and things get really ugly really fast yeah um and that's a good point you made that you know just about every u.s government agency has identified china as the top threat or the yeah. top long-term threat uh the pentagon state department cia fbi the treasury department like everybody you know, the treasury they all have their eyes on on china uh -huh. And I remember reading some reports earlier in the Biden administration that there was, there were some people in the administration that were kind of wanted a rapprochement with Russia so they could focus on China more, mm -hmm. but that clearly obviously didn't happen. I mean, things are, with Russia are about as bad as they could possibly be right now. Um, but, you know, and the U S is shooting itself in the foot by trying to, you know, pushing Russia and China together and pushing Iran and all these countries that are under sanctions into this new kind of anti-Western alliance that could build out of that. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, another thing that happened this week, or maybe it was last week, um, Lindsey Graham and Bob Menendez, who's the Democrat who leads the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, they introduced a bill that would give Taiwan about $4 billion in military aid over the next four years. Mm -hmm. And, and it would um, designate Taiwan as a major non-NATO ally. Whoa. Um, and these are two steps that would be extremely provocative to China. Uh, the bill, apparently the, the, this is just from some source in the Biden administration that said they're a little uneasy about it because they think it might, uh, antagonize China too much. But I mean, this is the stuff, and this isn't, you know, you get your crazy hawks like Tom Cotton and others have introduced bills to commit to going to war with uh, China over Taiwan, but they haven't really gone anywhere yet. And I mean, Lindsey Graham is a crazy hawk, <laughs> but Bob Menendez, he's very influential. Um, and, you know, he's usually a pretty good gauge of what the establishment Democrats want. Um, so yeah, it's just this is all pretty troubling stuff, and I and we really have to prioritize it, I think, because you know it's a big argument if you want to talk libertarian politics for secession and all that. They're like, oh, well, what about China? Isn't China going to come over here and blow us up if if we if your state secedes? Mm -hmm. um, so I think it it should be something that uh, people get more vocal about because mm -hmm. it. It really is. Again, it's tough right now because Russia is kind of everything for good reason. And people should be very loud about Russia, about opposing what's going on in Ukraine. I mean, there's no good end in sight for that. And like, we're really close. It's just escalation after escalation. And mm -hmm. I mean, there could be something could happen. There could be a direct conflict between the U.S. and Russia out of this. That's mm -hmm. how bad it is. Um, so... But still, people should still focus on China. Yeah, I think about this. I, I just don't have a good... I, when I, I did Reed's show the other day, and he kind of yeah. asked me what the best case scenario was, and I just didn't really have a good answer for him when it comes to Ukraine. It's just, I don't know. I can't picture anything remotely good. Yeah, it, it really does seem like the Biden administration has zero intention of cooling tensions with China or Russia. It's just constantly escalate, 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 escalate. And... 
it's shocking to me that a lot of the right were saying that when Biden said we will defend Taiwan, like, oh, that's a gaffe. Well, not really, because over the last year, he's consistently said this. I mean, this has been his play kind of all along is being a, a hawk on China. So in once again, saying that he's uh, Beijing Biden and he's not tough enough on China, even all the political rights in this, I mean, Dr. Oz, Trump. Um, Kathy Barnett, every single right-winger, even MAGA right-wingers, populist right-wingers, Ron DeSantis, you name the fucking right-winger, and they are so hawkish on China, and they're always going to bring up the Uyghur genocide, um, you know, we need to be tough on China, and they're beating us on trade, and there's never a solution that involves, hey, well, why don't we take the boot off of American people's necks, and let us be more productive, and stop trading with China if we really want to do that. Instead, let's just get aggressive about it. And yeah, the, the decoupling, you know, it's it's going to be, that's bad. But, um, you know, we largely benefit from the trade with China. And you never hear any of the hawks talk about that, that we largely make out, right? Because all we have to do is hit buttons on a computer and send them paper, and then we get all their stuff. And yeah, there may be some, you know, ill-gotten goods, but I feel like a lot of this Uyghur genocides claims, as Pat has done a very good job at debunking, it's just a lot of hearsay, but you hear the Hawks talk about it a lot to, once again, kind of ramp up tensions. Mm. Yeah. And, you know, you talk about the U.S.-China trade relationship, and I think it does benefit us. And, uh, you know, one thing Biden could do to kind of alleviate prices for Americans right now is lift the tariffs that Trump put in place. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's a pretty easy thing he could do. Mm -hmm. There's talk that he might do it or he might ease some, but they've been saying that for a year that he might ease some of those tariffs. Mm -hmm. um, Cause there's been report after report that said the cost of those tariffs have, have been put on the American American companies and the American consumer. There was a report, and I read it when I first started kind of doing YouTube videos. I believe it was 94% of the cost of the tariffs had fell on American people. Mm. So, yeah. Um, so, yeah. And, and then, you know, you talk about the Uyghur stuff, you know, this forced labor uh, claims that this bill was based on. It all really comes from this one think tank, uh, AS, I think it's the Australian Policy Initiative. I might have the name wrong, but mm -hmm. it's, uh, they did this whole report on forced labor in Xinjiang. Um, and it, it, it all goes back to that. But that, you know, that think tank is literally funded by the Pentagon. <laughs> it's funded by the Pentagon. It's funded by the U.S. government, the Australian government. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, people just have to kind of trace these things back. And uh, something tells me that, you know, Xinjiang's cotton industry is already really hurting from, from the ban that it just took place today. But mm -hmm. it was you know, it was coming for a few months. And my guess is that these sanctions and the ban are going to hurt the Uyghurs more than uh, help them, mm -hmm. as is usually always the case. Yeah, the one funny part about the whole Uyghur deal, um, and I think from what I understand, they're definitely not being treated good, but it's kind of funny that we ignore how bad we've treated the Middle East over the last 20, 30 years. But then as soon as China does it, now they're the bad guys. <laughs> like, yeah. I, I can't quite square that circle. And they love to bring that up. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And a lot of the same neocons that push the worst policies in the Middle East are the ones that suddenly care about the Uyghur mm -hmm. uh, Muslims. Um, yeah. And yeah, I mean, I definitely wouldn't want to be a Uyghur in Xinjiang uh, living under the Chinese government. <laughs> um, I'm not as educated on it as Pat is. I know it's definitely pretty bad there, but it's also not nearly as bad as the Western media and, and the State Department are telling you. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think they've acknowledged there was an AP article that basically said the camps were uh, closed down and all the Uyghur men were back out in the world. And they call it a cultural genocide, but they also have this big tourism industry mm -hmm. now where they, uh, uh, and it's all kind of about uh, the Uyghur culture and and stuff, so... I just uh, have a hard time, you know, buying all that stuff. I think really what uh, the numbers that they kind of manipulated was China started enforcing kind of the family planning stuff on the Uyghurs, mm -hmm. which, um, you know, is horrible, but that's what yeah. they've been doing to their own people for, for a long time, Chinese government. So, mm -hmm. 
Yeah, it just seems like uh, selective outrage to me. And, you know, so many Zionists are are all about the Uyghurs, but they don't care about the Palestinians that are nah. blockading Gaza. They get bombed all the time. And, I mean, so it's just so hypocritical on the face of it. Um, one of the big think tanks pushing this, it's kind of a weird think tank. It was started by Steve Bannon and Frank Gaffney. Frank Gaffney was... Uh, you know, people argue who's a neocon, who's not a neocon, because it's a specific kind of ideology. Um, Gaffney was a member of the Project for a New American Century, which was Bill Crystal's think tank in the 90s that wrote Rebuilding America's Defenses that called for, that said, you know, we needed a new Pearl Harbor to build up the American empire. And, you know, he was a PNAC guy. So I, that's kind of, to me, that qualifies as a neocon. Uh, and he's a big, you know, he's all for the Uyghurs, but he, he, uh, I can't even think of the examples right now, but all this really Islamophobic stuff that he's written that his other group he's worked for uh, has put out and just the idea that he cares about the Uyghur Muslims. I, I, I think he wrote something about criticizing Obama because Obama was letting some Uyghurs out of Guantanamo Bay. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, it's definitely, they have an interest in pushing this narrative and that interest I, is very neocon ideology that the U.S. has to dominate the Asia Pacific. That's what this is all about. And it's the same thing. It's the U.S. has to dominate Eastern Europe too. Mm -hmm. That's what this Russia stuff is about. So, yeah, I have I've tweeted out a couple times because you're seeing a lot of MAGA right wingers say this now. But I, I <laughs> I'm starting to think that uh, China is the number one enemy. Is the new they hate us for our freedom because yeah, you know, we we've moved on from all that to now China has to be the number one enemy and. It's really shocking to me that just people eat this stuff up, and especially people who consider themselves anti-war. But once again, no one's saying let's go to war with China, but you're definitely kind of putting a lot of smoke around that fire. And we're not quite, you know, lighting it, but it's it's close and it's concerning. And this is definitely something that I'm beating the drum on a lot because, like I said, there's a lot of good libertarians who buy into this and good right-wingers who buy into it. And if they would just abandon that one thing, they'd be pretty much as good as they're going to get, but they don't want to give that up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's important, and it's good that you care about the issue because more people uh, should. Yeah, so um, I think a couple of months ago, I was trying to look up information on drone campaigns under Biden. Um, what is the drone campaign kind of looking like now because you mentioned towards the latter end of trump's presidency he kind of started to calm things down at first it was really bad but um i really haven't been able to find any accurate figures recently on biden's kind of drone campaign or whether that's still kind of going on so um i guess what's that like and then what's the current status of yemen i think i was listening to you on scott horton you said there was something with a ceasefire so um you know what are what's the u.s drone campaign and what's yemen looking like currently so the drone campaign, um, so Trump did wind things down towards the end of his presidency with the exception of Somalia. Um, mm -hmm. He continued bombing Somalia until his, I think, one of his last days in office, they launched a drone strike in Somalia. Oh. Um, but that those have really, uh, I mean, Biden's really winded the drone war down even more. Mm -hmm. uh, although he did, he... According to U.S. Africa Command, they put out press releases every time they launch a drone strike. Now, there's also CIA drone strikes that we don't hear about. But just from what I've seen, uh, Biden's bombed Somalia about five times since he's came into office. Trump did it around 60 times each year. That was about – or 50 to 60 times each year. That was his average. But Biden did just send troops back to Somalia. Uh, mm -hmm. Trump – when he first came in, he sent a few hundred troops into Somalia. He ended up pulling them out at the end of his presidency and Biden's putting them up back in. So that could mean more drone strikes there. Uh, you know, if we're out of Afghanistan, there hasn't been a, a known U.S. drone strike since the withdrawal. Although the last day he, Biden slaughtered a family of 10 people, including seven children. Um, and, you know, on the way out, he, he bombed them pretty good. Uh, but there's also been a, a few strikes in Iraq and Syria, but for the most part, the drone camp, the drone war is pretty, pretty quiet, uh, which is one of the few good things, uh, that's come out of Biden. Um, cause Trump, he loosened the rules of engagement 
for the drone wars. And I think Biden kind of tightened him up or he might've just done something kind of for show to show that he pretend like he cares about civilians being killed. Um, so yeah, on that front, uh, like I said, we might see more in Somalia now that uh, the troops are going back. But but they actually just relocated the troops into Djibouti, which is right next door, where they could launch drone strikes anyway. So Trump's withdrawal wasn't really a withdrawal. Mm -hmm. He just did that, I guess, for the political credit. Um, so Yemen, so there's been a ceasefire for over two months that's been holding pretty good. There's been fighting on the ground, but there's been no reported Saudi coalition airstrikes for over two months, which is huge. That's the first time since the war started. They've mm -hmm. eased the blockade a little bit. Uh, they've allowed flights out of the Sana'a airport for the first time since they intervened in the war, which is a pretty big deal. And they're allowing, I think they're allowing more ships into Hodeida, which is the Red Sea port that they've had under a pretty tight blockade. Um, there's been some reported drone strikes. Now those could be U.S. against Al-Qaeda because the this whole time while backing the Saudis, the UAE, that coalition against the Houthis in Yemen, the U.S. has still been fighting a drone war against Al-Qaeda, which has winded down, but it's still, I think they're still launching some drone strikes there, uh, which is, you know, the Saudis and UAE use Al-Qaeda against the Houthis. So it's just like this spiral of, it's just what the U.S. does in these countries. But uh, but yeah, Yemen right now is kind of the most hopeful thing. And there's a war powers resolution that was introduced in the House that has about 80 co-sponsors, which is pretty big, that mm -hmm. to end uh, support for the war and U.S. support for the war. Um, and that LP is actually on it. They, they put out a tweet today that it's a week of action to call your reps. And there's a number you could call 1833. Is it? Yeah, stop war. One eight three three stop war. You put in your zip code and it gets you connected to your representative's office, your senator's office. So people could do that. Um, I know it probably it seems silly. I, I feel silly doing it, but I think it right now uh, it's a pretty pivotal moment in that war because mm -hmm. of the ceasefire. It's the opportunity to seize and to uh, to kind of put the pressure on Biden to show that there is popular support for ending that war. And I think it will make a difference, hopefully. Um, but he's also going to the Middle East next month, and he's going to visit Saudi Arabia. Yeah. And kind of that trip is really a big part of it, besides the oil stuff, is about building up this kind of anti-Iran alliance between the U.S.'s Arab allies and Israel. Mm -hmm. So, you know, he wants the Saudis to normalize Israel like the UAE and Bahrain have done in, uh, under Trump. So he might be willing to give them something. So I really hope that it's not, they, they don't make kind of a renewed push in Yemen. Uh, that would be really bad. Um, but I think there is maybe a chance of that. Um, so that's why I think putting the pressure with this war powers resolution is really important. You know, it seemed like he kind of had his finger on the pulse for that because um, when he was campaigning, he campaigned on ending offensive support, I think it was, for um, the... Uh, for that war but then obviously he got in and said he was going to do that and then just completely just nothing really substantial um, substantial came of that so um yeah do you think that if do you know when they're like supposed to vote on this is it like next week or in the coming weeks i'm not sure actually that's a good mm -hmm. question i should probably try to figure that out <laughs> yeah okay yeah well that um i, I know i called once before because i know rokana had put through the amendment before mm -hmm. and i want to say it was probably like a year ago that i called but um yeah there's been a few attempts mm -hmm. and one of them was under trump mm -hmm. and it got to his desk but he vetoed it um, yeah now i mean i've seen justin amash bring this up like the language in the bill it, it leaves room for a loophole or something because it says offensive operations but Technically, you know, the pr president can sign anything into law and still wage a war. Uh, mm -hmm. So this is more about just putting the pressure on him to end it. Um, so, but uh, yeah, there's a few attempts. They always try to tack it on to the NDAA, which is the annual military spending bill. They mm -hmm. throw a bunch of amendments into the NDAA and they've always tried to put one in to end support for the war in Yemen, but they never make it through. Mm -hmm. And even if they do, those amendments are like never really binding it's kind of weird it's like this really gray area um where the they say that it's the president's legally required to do these things but they a lot of times they just don't do the things they don't want to do 
shocking. Yeah, yeah. government doesn't <laughs> listen to uh, their own amendments or the constitution or anything like that. They just kind of throw it out and do whatever they want anyways. Um, so, and maybe it's just because I'm not the smartest foreign policy guy, but it seems like things with Iran have been kind of quiet. I know the drone strike in Soleimani was a big deal and a lot of people really wanted to start beating up on Iran. But it seems like that's not quite like there's as much focus over there. But it seems like you've brought up a few things that seem like there may be a little bit more going on there than is at least being spoken about. Yeah, yeah. There's actually a lot going on there. That's okay. pretty. It doesn't seem too good. Um, so, you know, Biden said he was going to return to the Iran deal, which he didn't. He entered these long, drawn-out talks with Iran to do it and really just kicked the can down the road and never committed to anything. And now, you know, you've had Israel very opposed to it, and they've been uh, there's been a few uh, assassinations inside Iran in the past few weeks that um, some of them have been attributed to Israel through the media, which is how they do it. They never take credit officially for this stuff. Um, not all of the deaths, but, I mean, there have been like six Iranians that involve either with Iran's Revolutionary Guard Corps or their like aerospace industry mm -hmm. that have just died. Two of them were poisoned and Iran thinks Israel did that. One IRGC colonel was like gunned down in Tehran and they, Israel probably did that. I mean, there's a report in the New York Times that said they told the US they did. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, it seems like they're trying to provoke something because they, they don't want, they want to kill the Iran deal for good. Mm -hmm. So if it, if they get Iran to respond, then that's their excuse to either attack them, which they really want to do, like really bomb Iran or just get the U.S. to, uh, you know, scrap the talks and the deal for good. Um, so something, I mean, there's always a chance of something popping off there between Israel and Iran. Uh, and um, like I said, this kind of, you know, the U.S. wants to step back from the Middle East and they want to leave in place they want Israel and the Gulf states to get along so they could kind of leave in place this alliance um, that will do what, you know, the U.S. wants to be done in the region. Uh, and, you know, that could come with security guarantees f for Saudi Arabia and the UAE and, and maybe uh, other countries there. I mean, who knows what that could look like. Um, but yeah, unfortunately, it's like when we're actually pulling out of the Middle East, I mean, we're not totally out. There's still troops in Syria and Iraq and Yemen. Um, but, you know, it's not like it can't really be celebrated because it's going to be a pretty bad situation there anyway with what they want to do. And, uh, you know, Israel's always talking about bombing Iran, bombing their their nuclear sites. Um, their so, civilian nuclear sites. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a good point. And they keep building plants underground because... Israel keeps bombing and sabotaging their other nuclear facilities. And then they say, Oh, look, they're building, <laughs> they're building underground. They must be trying to make a bomb, mm -hmm. uh, but it's clearly a reaction to what Israel's uh, done. Yeah. Um, and I, I think I heard Scott talk about this before, but um, do you know the details of their nuclear program? Cause if I remember correctly, it's like they would have to go to extreme and insane lengths for that to actually be any kind of bomb in Iran. Like it's such a small nuclear thing, but this has been kind of the talking point for the last literal 30 years. Mm. Um, I remember reading on Google, uh, the Friedman unit where they always say they're a Friedman unit away from having nuclear capabilities. Um, so do you know more about kind of what's going on specifically with the Iran deal and what Iran's kind of policy is. Cause I know Ron Paul always kind of put it as like, well, we're definitely giving them a lot of reason to yeah, want yeah. to develop nuclear capabilities. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we definitely are. And Israel is cause Israel has a secret nuclear weapons program mm -hmm. that we never hear about. And they're constantly attacking Iran. Um, so that definitely gives a country a reason to make a nuclear weapon, but you know, there's nothing indicating now that they're making a nuclear weapon. I mean, the Iran deal sets the, it's really strict limits for their enrichment. Um, I, I don't know. I'm not too good on the technical stuff, but sure. to, to make a nuclear weapon, they have to enrich uranium at 90%, which they've never done or never attempted. The Iran deal limits it at 3.75%, which isn't, you know, it's like the strictest limit they could have, and it makes it their nuclear facility subject to the most 
stringent inspections in the world. Yeah. So if anybody's against a nuclear-armed Iran, they should support this deal. Mm -hmm. um, now, Iran, you know, they never planned on building a nuclear weapon, so that's part of the re that's why they agreed to this deal because it was kind of a win-win. They would get sanctions lifted. They could just put on paper that they won't make a bomb. Mm -hmm. But what we've seen since the U.S. exited the deal is they've kind of slowly stepped up enrichment as leverage, clearly, uh, and uh, now they're enriching some uranium at 60%, mm -hmm. which is high, higher than they've ever done, but it's still not 90%. And you keep yeah. seeing these reports that, oh, they, they have enough enriched uranium. They might have enough enriched uranium to make a bomb in a few weeks, but none of their uranium is enriched at the percentage that they need to make a weapon. And then building a bomb would take them, you know, that would take a long time. It could take a year, it could take a few years, and then they have to test the bomb. I mean, there's just so many steps in between now and them actually having a nuclear weapon. And not to get too, like, in the weeds with the sanctions and stuff, but mm -hmm. one of the major sanctions Trump put on was the they designated the IRGC, uh, Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Yard Corps, as a terrorist organization. Mm -hmm. Now, this is a pretty huge designation because anybody that was in the IRGC either you know current or former members are now subject to u.s sanctions subject to their assets being frozen if they have any in the u.s which many of them probably don't or subject to travel bans and all that so the iran wants wanted that lifted as a condition to return to the deal with the biden administration which is pretty reasonable because it's such a big designation but the biden administration refused because they said oh it's not related to your nuclear program um but just yesterday, the the Iranian government, they said, okay, fine, we, we'll return to the deal without um, you lifting that designation, which is a pretty major concession from Iran's president, uh, Raisi, who they, everybody calls a hardliner, but all the, you know, really a hardline, an Iranian hardliner right now, basically just doesn't want to take crap from the US, but they're still all willing to return to this deal because it'll help their economy. They could sell their oil. I mean, the U S steals their oil, literally stops ships, takes it off of it and sells it. I mean, it's just completely absurd. And, uh, so yeah. Um, you know, that's another option for Biden with all the gas prices, you know, that's a, that's a no brainer return to the Iran deal, lift sanctions on Iran, lift sanctions on Venezuela, but no, you won't. So. Yeah. It, it's, <laughs> We wonder why they're enriching uranium to that degree, but then we steal their oil, we sanction the fuck out of them, and we want to be able to inspect their nuclear plants, which they've always complied with, from my it. understanding. Oh, no. Um, there we go. We good? Yeah, yeah, I got you. Cool. Um, you. They've always complied with pretty much everything we've asked them to do. And for some reason, we still just kind of want to poke the bear when it comes to Iran. I've, I've never understood this hawkishness because literally their GDP, I think, is like 0.2% of ours. And we're supposed to believe that they're going to build some nuclear bomb and mm -hmm. attack the U.S. Like, you guys are out of your freaking mind if you think that they pose any remote threat to us at all yeah, and mean, that they yeah, would have any all, attention. It's all because of Israel. And, mm -hmm. I mean, that's another thing about Trump is that you know, you're never going to really be anti-war if you're as pro-Israel as he was. I mean, he was arguably the most pro-Israel president of all time. Uh, yeah. And all the stuff he did with Iran. I mean, killing Soleimani and, and all the sanctions. And, you know, I, I remember he was set. He, like, ordered to, to bomb Iran. And then he, like, right. changed his mind at the last minute. Um, so because of Iran's presence in Syria. You know, that's why he didn't leave Syria. That was his ultimate justification, that, and to steal the oil, secure the oil, as he put it, which I do definitely miss how candid he was about everything. Mm -hmm. But, you know, that was what really convinced him was Lindsey Graham and Jack Keane, who's a former general who's on Fox News all the time, went into Trump's office and he said, you see all these oil fields in Syria? You know who's going to get that if we leave? Iran. And Israel's not going to be happy. So Trump ah. said, oh, okay. Yeah. So, so, of course, we got a bad out for Israel. Yeah, and that's why we're still in Iraq. And, I mean, he started basically, you know, there was a pretty low-intensity war going on under Trump between the U.S. and the Shia militias in Iraq um, that led to the Soleimani getting killed and led to more attacks on U.S. troops. And so, yeah, I mean, we could have just pulled out of Iraq, but 
it's all it was all about Iran and and is because of Israel. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, this U.S. foreign policy stuff is so freaking confusing. There's there's so many different layers and stuff going on. Um, so I know you were a little. Uh, we're we're kind of hitting time here. Um, I got a couple questions I ask every single guest, and we'll rock and roll out of here. But I definitely want to have you back on and maybe have you on with like Pat and some other people because I think that'd be a uh, real good talk. Um, yeah, Dave, what does liberty look like to you? What does liberty look like to me? Well, I, I have to say, I mean, since I moved out to the country um, and just kind of doing my own thing out here, like I feel so much more free. And, you know, I because I, I grew up in New York. I grew up on Long Island. I lived in Brooklyn for years. And just getting out uh, and kind of doing my own thing out here. I mean, I, I have a few acres. Like I, I just feel really free and grow my own food. I got chickens and ducks and sheep and to me, that's kind of what it looks like. And, and even though I, you know, I just joined the LP and, and I'm excited about what they're doing. I think for, for Americans, I mean, I, I think the best thing is to just try to get your own little piece of land and uh, move out to the country because I just feel so much more free doing that. And my taxes are just like nothing compared to what I was paying in New York. Um, so yeah. And, and I mean, that's, right now my life, like I feel pretty free. I've never felt this free. And that's kind of what I think liberty is, is to be able to control your own environment um, and just do what you want. And luckily for me, just being out here and being left alone is enough. Um, But I would like to be more free and uh, not have to fund wars overseas and not have to worry about COVID lockdowns. And, uh, you know, when my kid gets older, um, that's the things that, you know, it's really just because I have a kid and I want to have more kids that I'm not totally unplugged and just mm-hmm. out in my garden and, uh, <laughs> you know, working some bullshit job because that's enough mm-hmm. to get by around here. <laughs> yeah, dude, I got you. Yeah, that's that's awesome. Yeah, I, th- I think I saw a picture of a meal that you cooked up. I think you cooked up some rabbit meat or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I shot a rabbit in my backyard. Mm-hmm. It was really good. Nice. Uh, I never had rabbit before. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, we had kale and potatoes that we grew in our garden. It was the first time. I mean, I have eggs every morning for breakfast yeah. that are from my ducks usually. Mm-hmm. But it was the first time, like, I had a whole proper meal that was just entirely harvested from my backyard. And it felt really good. Mm-hmm. And so, and I kind of, I ate the rabbit because I wanted to see if I liked it. And uh, mm-hmm. I'm going to start breeding meat rabbits soon because they seem pretty easy to do just to become oh. more self-sufficient. And rabbit's great, dude. It's, it was so good. It's better than chicken. I couldn't believe how good it was. Nice. I did it for like the novelty of it. I'm like, oh, let me eat a rabbit because there's so many in my backyard. But yeah, it was really good. And that feels good, especially with my kid, like watching him whenever he's eating like an egg or something, something that I grew in my backyard. Just like, it's just a really good feeling. Um, being self-sufficient. I mean, that's, that's what Liberty uh, looks like to me right now. Yeah, dude, that's that's really awesome. And I wish I could say I've done the same thing, but I do a lot of my own cooking. And there is something to sit down with a nice meal that you made for yourself. And uh, even, you know, you sit down with your family and able to enjoy just something that you made. There's there's something about that that's very, very special. So that's awesome that you have the uh, opportunity to do that. Um, what does health look like to you? Ooh, I'm not a... Uh... So for me, I've never been, uh, I'm lucky. I don't, I'm just like naturally skinny. Um, (laughs) I've always eaten pretty bad my whole life and drank a lot and smoked a lot Mm -hmm. and did a lot of drugs until pretty recently. It's been a few years that I've kind of, basically health to me is just feeling good because I used to feel like crap all the time because that was Mm -hmm. the kind of lifestyle I lived. But now, um, Living out here, I get a lot more physical exercise, doing work outside. But when I first started writing for antiwar.com full time, we were living in Richmond. And I mean, I would work from noon to midnight and then I would stay up till four in the morning, drink in and then sleep until like 11 and then start work. And I just felt like shit all the time. But since we moved out here, I have to wake up every morning at 630 to let, you know, take care of all the animals and stuff. And I just feel so much better. So to me, health is being outside and doing stuff outside. I need that because I'm not going to exercise on my own. It's just, it was never built to do that. Um, But just eating good. I just eat like low carb and try to avoid sugar. 
and I feel pretty good. And, uh, yeah, it's just, it's the out, outdoor stuff going out in the morning when the sun's coming up. That's, that's the best. That's health. Yeah. That's actually a uh, very, very important thing, whether uh, a lot of people realize it or not, but getting sun on your face and sun on your skin first thing in the morning helps set your body's circadian rhythm, which basically just like your body's natural cues to awaken and do different mm. functions. So uh, that's actually hugely important. Um, whether people really realize it or not. So that's why I'm a big fan of kind of getting outside. And I always take my dogs for a walk first thing every single morning. And not only that, it's kind of nice to just get out first thing in the morning and take a you know, nice breath of fresh air is yeah. kind of cliche as it is. Um, well, uh, this has been a blast, Dave. I've, I'm really glad we finally got the chance to talk and I'm glad I got to have you on. Um, go ahead, plug away and we'll get on out of here. Yeah. Antiwar.com. I, I write mostly uh, news articles that you see in the top section. Uh, that's what I do. And uh, you can follow me on Twitter at DeCampDave. Nice. All right, dude. Well, uh, I'm, like I said, I'm glad we were able to shoot the shit, and we'll definitely do it again. So uh, if you got any other thoughts, we'll close her out. Yeah, that was fun. I hope to do it again. Cool, dude. All right, everybody. Take care. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger. Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.